Well, grab your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. Derek said, um, the pastor up in Mount Vernon at Communion Church, and uh, we've been a church for just over 10 years, um, and so um, we, we planted the church there out of a church in Marysville, um, and so, you know, we had a group of people that went up and, and basically said, hey, we're, we're going to, to do this, to be a church, and we were, at that time, uh, terrified and excited, um, and if you've ever been through a process like that, you understand how those two things exist together. Um, and one of the reasons why you are, are terrified in, in that process is because there's so much that could go wrong. Now, in the last 10 years, my understanding of what can go wrong has not, has not gotten smaller. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've seen churches struggle and die and fall apart for reasons that at that point I probably could never have imagined. Um, and so I come here today not to lay those out for you. I'm not going to talk about how churches fall apart and all the things that go wrong. Um, but I want to talk about what God's plan for his church is. Because I actually think one of the reasons why churches fall apart is because we forget what we're doing. We forget who we are. We forget what God intends for his church to be. And so what gives me confidence um, to push past my own fears and my own sometimes doubt about, why, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Is just to remember who God is and what he is doing. So today, I want to simply want to show you God's plan for his church as it's outlined in Ephesians chapter 4. And so when we were going through the, the process of planting uh, a church, uh, Ephesians 4 is where I sat quite, quite a bit. And I actually preached at all the different three-strand churches out of Ephesians chapter 4. Um, what we're going to cover today, I actually covered in four sermons at that point. So um, today is going to be a lot all at once. Uh, but the reason why we're going to do it is because I think it's good for us to look sometimes at kind of a big section of Scripture, look at kind of everything in context, look at what God is saying to us. Um, it helps us not to kind of just get hung up on one little thing, but to see this whole description in a unified way. So to give a little context, I'm going to start with five verses from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 4 starts with therefore, which means he is building on the argument of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Um, but, but in chapter 3, we get this idea of what the church is meant to do. And so in verse 8, Ephesians 3, it says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So what is the church supposed to do? What has God intended since the beginning? The eternal purpose is to use his church to make known his manifold wisdom. We exist so that people will know who God is in a more complete way. And then you go, okay, but how? How do we do that? That's what Ephesians 4 is here to answer for us. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, says this. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
So this is, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Um, and this letter is meant to be a circulated letter, right? It's meant to be passed from church to church. Um, and I say that because while all Scripture is beneficial, while all Scripture is for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, there are some books of the Bible that are written very specifically to a place, right? So if you take First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians are answering questions that the Corinthians have sent to him. It, it, is, it is directed specifically at issues they have going on in their church. Philemon, it's about a specific guy and what's going on. And so, so sometimes to kind of put those into context takes a little bit more work. But when we look at these circulated letters, they're broader in scope. It doesn't take as much work. We can read this and basically this is speaking to us very directly. Now Paul begins by referring to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. And the reason he says that is because he's in jail as he is writing this. This is one of the prison epistles. Uh, written while he was in, under house arrest in Rome. And what Paul is, is saying here is, is that while he is in chains, the gospel is not bound. The work of the church is not hindered by the fact that he is currently not able to leave where he is. He says that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, specifically, he says, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. He goes on in 1 Timothy 2 to say, and it's not only that, there are things happening here. There are guards and there are other inmates who are hearing the gospel who would not hear the gospel if I was out somewhere else. And so he's showing all the ways that God is working, even in situations that we think of as not ideal. The work of God is not hindered by Paul being locked away. The church is still active and able. And Paul uses this to encourage the people. This is a call to action. He challenges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in this, we get kind of a, the first part of a definition of who the church is. The church is called out. There are people who have been called. That's actually what the word church comes from or where it comes from. The church means called out once. The church is a people who have been called by God. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're told in 1 Peter 2. We are called from death to life. So we're told in Ephesians 2. We are called from being strangers and aliens to fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Also from Ephesians 2. And it's in this calling out that God reveals his wisdom to the world. It's in the reconciliation of absolutely unworthy people that God shows the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places that he indeed is in control. Because if God can do powerful things through a mess of people like us, it shows that he is far more powerful than someone who can just collect talented people. He shows his power through our weakness. We are then a people called out to make him known. And the way that Paul says we reveal his glory, though the part that we have in this, is we are to walk in a manner worthy, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Which is to say, we're a people called out, but not just as individuals. We're called out to be a people. We're called out to live as a community in unity. And the unity that we share is not based on the kind of people that we are, it's based on the fact that we have all been called out. We have all been changed by God. That is what we share. 
We have all been given His Spirit to dwell in us. Now, it's important for us to know that that is what unifies us. Because in order to unify with people, we have to know what we unify around. Right? Every community has something that kind of holds them together. This is one of the beautiful things about being a pastor. I have all of these very different people in my church, and as I get to know them, I get to kind of know the subcultures that they're part of. And I have learned about subcultures that I knew very little about before. We have a friend in the, in the, I have a friend in the church who is a gamer, right? I'm not a gamer. That whole world is foreign to me. Um, so when he starts talking about how his son is making money playing, twi- uh, playing on Twitch and people are basically watching him play and then just giving him money, and I'm like, why are they giving him money? I don't understand. But it's a super interesting little you know, world that, the, that he, they live in. Um, I have some guys in my church who compete in triathlons. I, there's a guy in my church who is an ultra marathoner. You know what that is? It just means you run for a long time. Um, and right now, actually, he just started the, the Pacific Crest Trail from the beginning, and he's going to do the whole thing this week, right? Or not this week, over the next little bit. But, but that whole community is, is, is really unified around kind of pushing your body to the limit, what you can do, and that's what they get together and talk about. There's a friend of mine who is part of the Skagit County Table Tennis Association, all right? He's telling me about this, and I'm like, you and five other guys. No, no, they open up the gym of one of the big high schools, and it's, it's, it's wall-to-wall. There are hundreds of people in Skagit County who get together numerous times a week to play table tennis, a world I would not have known existed. Anyway, but all of these subcultures, all of these, all of these communities are unified by something. They're unified by what they do. They're unified by what they believe in or what they enjoy. And in this life, you have what unifies you, and then you have all of the variables that come from the outside that show you how you're different. All the variables that pull you apart. But what keeps a community together is that which unifies it. And Paul tells us here that what unifies us together is that we are God's people. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We have been knit together by the Spirit. The glue that holds us together is eternal and it is divine. We have a unifier that should be able to hold us together through all sorts of dividers, all sorts of things prying from the outside. And yet over the last couple of years, we've seen those things from the outside have a lot of power. Differences on the threat of pandemics and mask wearing, differences on how to handle race issues, difference on politics and presidents, difference specifically in relational strife with people in the church. And the reason why those things are able to pull us apart is because we are not eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In every other sphere of society, those powerful things, it makes sense that they're stronger than what holds a group like the Table Tennis Association together. But for us, the glue that holds us together is so strong, those things should not be able to pull us apart. We have been made one by God himself. And so this is why the life of the church is so important. This is not just a good place to raise your kids or a good community to be a part of with nice people. The church is the place where we worship God by preaching his truth in how we love one another. Paul goes on to tell us how to do this. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
So let's look, at, let, let's look at those pieces real quick. First, he says we must act with humility. Humility is defined for us in Philippians 2. Starting in verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And the example that's given to us there then is, is Jesus, who gave up everything for us. And the idea is that as we look to the cross, seeing that we are nothing without what he has done for us, this would lead us to a place of humility, where we recognize other people, where we see the differences, but we don't allow those differences to become something that is worthy of division. We set aside our differences. We're willing to live in that tension as an act of worship. He then says we must have gentleness. And gentleness comes from applying humility. Right? Gentleness is being able to see another person as worthy of kindness. And if you approach other people through the lens of unity, you say we're already united, it's not that hard to be kind to them. Yet, that's not often how we approach other people. We tend to relate to one another in relationship through perceived slights, in response to how they treated us from the standpoint that we are good and they are bad, that we are right and they are wrong. And when you approach other people that way, you're in, you feel entirely justified in treating them however you want to. Because they're bad and they're wrong and, and you're just trying to bring, bring the truth to them. But the issue is if God is glorified through our unity, then winning the argument is not the most important thing. How we work things out matters. And if we are planning on being with these people through the long haul, then we need to deal with them in a way that is building up trust and love, not just solving the problem that is right in front of us. And so gentleness is an investment in unity, allowing the long-term peace to have more value than this moment right in front of us. The third tool he gives us for unity is patience. Now, the word translated patience here actually means long-suffering, and I think actually the term long-suffering is better than patience um, because there are things about people that are so annoying, right? I mean, people are frustrating. Sometimes it's just that they tell the same stories. Sometimes it's all everything it has to be about themselves. Some people want to talk about their jobs and the money that they make all the time. Some people are just like kind of mean, right? They're not trying to be mean necessarily, but everything they say is like biting and critical, and you're like, what is wrong with you? Right? I mean, some of these things are sinful, right? Some of these things are things that should change, but, but long-suffering means you stick with people through the long process of change, even if they keep having the same thing pointed out to them over and over again. Patience is suffering for a long time for the sake of God's glory, even if that person doesn't change in the way you think they should. It's believing that maybe God put that person in your life to change you. Patience is trusting in God's plan over your own wants. It brings us to our last tool for unity here, bearing with one another in love. 
Um, bearing with implies struggle. Um, and so Paul never, never really kind of lays these things out there like they're going to be easy. He doesn't pretend like it's going to be natural to, to be unified with people. He understands it's going to be a fight. It's going to be work. So he doesn't call us to avoid strife here. He calls us to pursue love. So we must actively live a life worthy, eagerly maintaining peace, bearing with one another. And we do all of these things so that our life as the church is not a reflection of the world around us. Right? We live in a world that is full of selfishness and individualism, that lacks in commitment. And we say, we are going to live differently because we have been called out as God's people to live differently. We are going to live God's kingdom principles as we live with each other in a way that says our values are different because we serve a different king. We want to reveal who that king is to the world around us. And we can only do that if our lives actually match what we say we believe. We do this so that the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now, Paul goes from here now to really press into this idea of unity, what it looks like to, what it means that we're unified. In verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Right, this section is known as the one section. Um, there are seven different ones that Paul points out that unify us. Seven different things that we share all together. And these unifiers are meant, are here, here are meant to make it absolutely clear to us that it is God who builds his church. That it is God who calls the people, God who provides the spirit, God who is the reason for our hope, God who is the essence of our faith. He is the name in which we are baptized and it is over all and through all and in all, or he is over all and in all and through all. And so we are not only unified by him, but he is the power by which the church functions and fulfills its mission. Every part of what we do is God working through us. And what this does is it actually allows us to live with a little bit more freedom and levity. Right? Because if it's not up to us to make sure everything happens right, then all of a sudden we don't have to be so critical all the time. Well, the church has lots to do, right? Evangelism, discipleship, service, all of the things that make up our Sunday service. Who's going to watch the kids? Who's going to make the coffee? Who's going to hand out the bulletins? All of these things. None of that has any ability to, to do anything apart from God working through it. It also means that God can make himself known through Maranatha praise songs, Christian contemporary music, hymns, Gettys. He will show change in his church, no matter if you have impressive backdrops, lights, fog machines, pallet walls, shag carpets, right? These are all the things that, that churches end up arguing about. And it's worth thinking about some of these things. It's worth thinking about how we are showing ourselves and presenting ourselves. Absolutely. But none of this is powerful enough to alter the one hope that belongs to our call. So we can have these conversations. We can have these even debates. 
But at the end of the day, we should be able to set those things aside saying what unifies us is what matters. As we think about all that God is doing to unify his people, all that he is doing to do his work through us, this should put our differences in perspective. Here's one of the things I asked uh, people at my church to do when they are struggling with someone else in the church. Right? I say, okay, I'm just, I'm just I'm assuming that there is tension in the church because there always is. Uh, I know uh, here at Roots, it's been a little bit lighter over the last couple years than it has been in some other places. Um, but but these, these things always come up, right? There are two people. They both love God. They try to love each other. But man, it is hard. So when I sit down with all these people, I say, if you're both Christians, you will be spending eternity together, which is not the best news always for people. But the beautiful part of this, if you can get this vision to your head, is, is, is that in eternity, you will be living together, not begrudgingly. It's not like Jesus will say, well, you have to live with that person. By that point, we will actually want to be with that person. Which means the reason why we don't right now is simply because of sin. Their sin, your sin, sin is the problem. And if you can look at this as, as God has put us together in the church to fight against this sin, then it's the two of us together against this thing that is dividing us. It's not you against them. We're fighting against what this, this broken world is doing to us. And God says, I've given you these people to help you work through that. And so the person who you have a hard time loving that's God's gift to prepare you for glory. A glory that you will spend with that person. God has given you a role in their life as well to help prepare them. And if you hold on to that hope and that vision, this view of where God is leading us, it will help you to maintain unity in the present. Even when it's hard, even when it's like you go back time and time again trying to make it right and every conversation makes it worse. I don't know if you've ever had those relationships. You're like, this one's going to be better, right? You keep going back because our hope is not in this moment. This moment is filled with sin and brokenness. We are aiming and we are living for something that is eternal. Paul goes on here to give us another perspective to help us in our pursuit of unity. Verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is where we're going to skim over a little bit. There's a lot there to work through. But what we're going to look at is what Paul does here is he does a total 180 and he goes from talking about what we have in common, all of these, these, these things that unify us, to actually pointing to the, the differences. Right? He, he talks about this concept of God's uneven grace. Now, when I say uneven, I don't mean unfair. I don't mean without reason. But the idea that Paul is putting out here is that God distributes his grace to accomplish his plan, not to produce equity. Which means he gives different amounts of grace to different people. He pours out his, his, his grace in terms of giftings differently. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 12, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. 
There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, this gets into that whole conversation about, about the church as a body, right? About how God equips people to do his will, and there's, there's all these various parts working together. And when he, what he talks about is that, that, that we need to give honor to each one of those parts. But it's not because all the parts and pieces are the same. Paul doesn't say that all of the parts and pieces have equal weight. And we know from the body that not every part of our body actually does the same amount of, of or are important to our functioning. Which is to say, if you lose your toe, it's, it, you know, especially if it's your big toe, you can start kind of having balance issues. But you can keep living. There's other parts of the body that if they, if they go, you're toast. There's, there's different weights and value to these things. And so the point of these sections on the body is not to flatten everything out and pretend that everyone's the same. That God actually kind of gives us all this same amount and that somehow that what we're supposed to be finding is a way for everyone to be entirely equal. Within God's plan, different people shoulder different amounts of load. Different people play kind of larger or smaller parts based on the grace that he gives. And so this conversation about the body is actually for us to be able to step back and look at all the parts and say, God has given value to all of these parts. All of these parts are part of what we need for the body to function as God has intended. When you look around the church, you shouldn't see you shouldn't be trying to make everything equal. You also shouldn't be saying that person isn't worth anything. Instead, what we do is say, God has brought all of these people to this place in order for this church to function in the way that he intends. How can I honor other people in a way that actually helps that to happen? And so if you've been called and gifted by God to play a major role in the church, awesome. Don't compare yourself to those who have been called to less. If you've been called to less, if you feel like, man, sometimes I just don't, no, honor, honor what God has given to you. Honor the part that he has for you to play. Do not minimize the weight of the calling and the role that God has given you. All this to say, the local church is not a contest. It's a family. It's not a machine. It's an organism. As such, the value of every part is related to the whole. So we're not trying to create a bunch of equal parts. We're trying to create a functioning whole. Even more so, we do that because of the one who is organizing it. 1 Corinthians 12 goes on to say, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so the perfect complement of pieces leads us to unity. It comes by us recognizing that God has given us in the people here all that he needs to do what he plans to do through you. There's not, man, we could really accomplish things if we could go and find someone who could do this. Oh man, if God would just do this, then we could, we could actually, you know, we could fill this place. 
sorry, I, I was in the church planting world for, world for a while, and some of the conversations about how we're going to make these things work just drive me crazy. God has brought all of you here, and he has equipped you to do something here. And so the best thing that we can all do is every week when you come in here, go, what, in what way can I serve other people here? Not looking around trying to go, what's that person doing? What's that? How has God equipped me to play a role in this place where I can serve other people on a regular basis? I'm going to skip that. I'm going to jump to verse 11. In verse 11, Paul starts to kind of now put bone or put some, some flesh on the bones of everything that he's been talking up, about up to this point. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up in love. You're hearing a lot of the same language of what we've been talking about. This is where he starts to kind of put it all together. Um, Paul begins by giving us the five gifts that have been given to the church. Uh, this is not an, exhaust, an exhaustive list. Uh, he obviously says some other gifts in other places. Uh, but he mentions these five here specifically for a reason. Um, now, there are churches, especially of the Pentecostal variety, that, that, that basically say this is what fivefold ministry means, and like every church should have these five roles. I don't think that's what he is doing here. Right? I believe what Paul is actually doing here is tracing God's leading of his people um, through the retelling of how he has formed his church. And what I mean by that is if you go back to the Old Testament, every time they made a covenant with God, every time they came um, and did any sort of, of ceremony, one of the things they did is, is retraced everything that God had done. Right? So they'd always go, remember what you did for us in Egypt when you rescued us from Egypt. And what you did is you led us across the wilderness. And they'd always retell the story. I think what Paul is doing here is retelling the story of God's formation of the early church. How God has provided his people with what they need to do their part. And he does this through the people whom God has given as a foundation. Right? He says, the, the apostles and the prophets, these are the foundation of the church. And I know that that's the language that Paul uses because he, he says this in Ephesians 2. He says, You're no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's, there's this idea that what God is doing is, is building something, and, and, and the apostles and the prophets, they are the foundation of that building. Who are the prophets then? The prophets are those people whom God speaks his word through, those people who gave us the Bible. Who are the, who are the, sorry, who are the apostles? Those are the people who are eyewitness to Jesus' life and teaching. Who then would the evangelists be? The evangelists would be those who took the word of God from where it was in Jerusalem out to Judea, to the ends of the earth. Paul is one of these. We then have the preachers and teachers, those who take the word given by the prophets with the assurance given by the apostles to teach those gathered by the evangelists so that they mature and they grow in the faith. 
And so what Paul is saying is, God has done this, and God has done this, and God has done this. He has given you all of these people in, in the life of the church. He has worked through them so that you can be the church here today. And it should be a huge encouragement to us on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, um, that, that God's building of the church still exists in this form. Right? I mean, we, we sometimes take for granted, like, oh yeah, the church has been here my whole life. There's always been churches. The fact that the church exists should blow our minds. This didn't start here. Right? This was something that happened way on the other side of the world. It, it, you know, Jesus was not the biggest celebrity in his lifetime. He was in a very small area. So we can trust that, 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 that the reason why this is still happening, the reason why we are here is because God is working through his church. Paul then continues his story about the church by showing us the part that we now play, how, 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 these, how these parts work together. He tells us that the shepherds and teachers, right, that's just another name for pastors, they equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means your teachers, your pastors, they are to provide the means for the people of the church to exercise their gifts. The saints, which are the people of the church, use those gifts to build up the body. So as the pastors teach and organize so that the people of the church can, can, can use their gifts, then the people of the church use their gifts in a way, and, and as we're all working together, the church is built up and matures. And if we grow, if we mature in this way, it helps us to avoid the lies and the controversy and all of the things that are going to be attacking us from the outside and trying to pull us apart. And part of the reason it does this is because when we grow together in this way, it builds the relation, relational trust necessary to have the hard conversations. Right? It tells us here that we, will be, we need to speak the truth in love. But what it implies is that speaking the truth is happening. That there's enough relationship built that there will be the hard conversations happening. And the hard conversations are just simply that we don't avoid the difficulties and the controversies and the relational uh, brokenness that happens when people are gathered together. The church doesn't maintain its unity by avoiding conflict, but by taking seriously the call to grow in Christ. By understanding the role that all these other people play in your life. By actually engaging with them in a way that, 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 you know, iron sharpening iron works out those differences in a way that grows you so that you are mature enough to stand against all of the lies of this world. This is how we pursue unity. Not by becoming the same, not by avoiding our differences, but by viewing everything through the lens of Christ. We remember that we are one because of Christ. We've been rescued from sin because of Christ. We have been called out by Christ. We have been made members of his family. Christ has organized all of these parts, these people, to function for his glory. And he is using each of you to grow one another, to help all of you mature together. And in doing this, go back to the beginning, God is revealing his manifold wisdom through sinners saved and sanctified in the church. Now, Paul always, when he's writing, anticipates the yeah, but. Right? And by the yeah, but, I mean the, 
yeah, that sounds good. That's what people are supposed to say. That's what people are supposed to do. But you don't know the people in my church. You don't know. I'm an introvert. I can't talk to people. Like all the stuff that we have, right? The lawyer in our head who comes up anytime there is like a specific imperative or guidance given that says, you don't have to do that. But rather than trying to answer all the objections that I'm sure Paul sees, he simply shows us the community as God has created to exist. He really does say, get this picture locked in your head. Keep pushing forward because what he has planned is so great. He says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what we're aiming for. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the simple task then that Paul is asking each one of you to take on. Each one of you should enter into the church asking, how has God equipped me to serve others? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, we're told in Philippians chapter 2. You should be putting the interest of these other people before your own as an act of worship to God. And we do this not only believing that God will empower us to actually be able to live this out, but believing that God will actually be taking care of us in the process. Right? The hardest part of serving others is that, that you're kind of vulnerable then. You're not taking care of yourself. But when we all act like that, then we're all not serving each other and we're all just kind of protecting ourselves. That's how the world lives. The vision that God gives for us in the church is that every single person is pouring out what we're doing is just serving. But we are being served as well. And so we're actually getting everything that we need through the service of the other people. And I would say this is the vision of heaven that the Bible gives as well. Heaven is every person living out their role perfectly in worship to Jesus and in service of others so that everyone is completely cared for in a way that makes us praise God and love one another more and more and more and more. That's how you build people up in love. You, you help them to see that these people love them, that they need these people. Now, as I said, this is not how our world operates. Honestly, it's not how a lot of churches operate. There's a reason why a lot of churches are consumeristic, because basically they are responding to the people who come in towards what the people are looking for. But this living this way gives us a chance to shine the light of Christ into a world that sees that we treat each other differently. This it should be the mission for every church moving forward. So when people look at the church, they again, they see, holy cow, those people don't just, don't just go there and don't just do the things and show up and no, those people actually have a care and a concern for one another that doesn't make sense to me. And honestly, well, I'm going to totally sidetrack here. We, we rent out part of our building to, um, to a school that's an entirely not Christian school. Um, and it's been really interesting over the years that they've been there and we've been operating where they see how our church interacts with one another. Um, and they know how they interact with one another. And more and more, they're asking me questions like, so why do you guys do that? How do you get people to do that? That's usually what it is. Like, how do you manipulate people into serving each other like that? I'm like, 
Jesus. Um, but it's, it's a pretty amazing witness because I can tell them the truth, the truth of the gospel and they'll sit there and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when they see people loving each other like that, it really does break down walls that, can, that are very difficult to break down otherwise. And so we should be quick to forgive as we have been forgiven. We should be open-handed with our money and possessions because they have been given to us to steward, not collect. We should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because this is the role that God has given us to play out. Now, sometimes this is terribly painful and hard, going against the flow, swimming upstream, trying to do something that is not natural to us. It always takes work. And I never want to minimize the difficulty of, of kind of not only pushing against kind of the waves of ideology out there, but pushing against what we have going on in our own hearts. As I said, we make all sorts of excuses as to why, why we are kind of exempt from this. And so this is a fight. This is something where you have to keep showing up and doing what you know is right, even when it doesn't feel like it. But it's worth doing because it is good. And as Christians, we are not called to pursue what is easy, but what is eternal. And by the grace of God, we have been invited into his eternal kingdom and his eternal work. So to echo Paul, may we live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Now Jesus gives us help in this um, as he has given us communion. He has given us this, this means to kind of be confronted with this reality every week when we get together. Because when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're not just remembering that Jesus is the source and motivation for all of our living, but that we have been unified. And this is an opportunity for us to be renewed every week in that unity. Communion is our weekly reminder of our connection to Christ and to one another. So as you come to the table today, come to be communed with Christ and with his church, recognizing that both of these relationships are given to us for our growth and for his glory. Let's pray.